Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 24. Well, we saw the last time the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, we look back to the past of Jesus' sacrificial death, and we look forward to his coming in glory with the Lord's Supper. Today we're going to see what it means to be a servant based on Jesus' example. Starting with verse 24, it says, But there was also a rivalry among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Well, we left off in the last time we were together with um, the announcement that Jesus made that one of you at the table will betray me, uh, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And you had three possibilities or contributors to the rivalry, as far as I see it. The first one, it could have arisen out of the uh, reclining arrangement. Now, most of you, including me, have seen the paintings of the, uh, The Last Supper from Da Vinci, it is totally out of whack. First of all, the food wasn't, it's not, they didn't, it was a Passover uh, dinner, not the t- uh, traditional Italian fish meal with puffy bread. Uh, you know, he had a long table where more of the, uh, back in those days it was called the triclinium. And you didn't sit at the table, you reclined. So there would be three, three pieces of a table, okay, and it would make sort of like a U shape. And it was a lower table and they would recline and rest on like a, a like a cushion. Now, why do I say that this could have been a contributor to the rivalry? Well, in John 13, 21 through 26, you see some of the seating arrangement. You see that uh, John leans on Jesus' bosom, okay, as they're reclining. Uh, and then you, he talks to John and he says, it's the one who I give sop to or the one I dip in the dish with. So what you have a picture of is it's Jesus and most likely John to his right, and Judas to his left, okay, because the whole table didn't hear that it was Judas. Only one person heard it. So he, if he's dipping in the dish, it had to be the guy on his, his other side. Speculation, but it, it fits. And then we also find out in that portion of Scripture that Peter is motioning to the Lord. He's probably like, who is it? Who is it? You know, tell me. I want to know. So most likely Peter was on the further end of the, the triclinium, it was called. Now, there was a lot about how people sat with the, you know, with the host or the important person of the feast that had to do with positions of humility. Um, Peter was at the end. Did Peter decide, finally, I get it, I'm going to try to be humble? Or did Jesus humble him and say, Peter, you sit at the end? Uh, he, even though Judas lifted up his heel against Jesus, Jesus still sat him next to him. He still loved him to the very end and didn't even betray him to the rest of the disciples that he was going to be the one. Uh, John was to the right. That's one possibility is the seating arrangement. And as I go further, we'll understand how this makes sense. The second possibility or contributor is Jesus spoke of his betrayer and possible as each one trying to prove that they weren't the betrayer because he didn't expose it. It went from trying to prove, hey, it wasn't me, you know, maybe talking about what they did for the kingdom, that it almost became a one-upmanship, and now they started competing with each other. And you might say, well, that's, that's kind of silly, but you know what? 
I think some of us have seen this or even outright been a part of it. You start sharing about what you feel you've done for the Lord and then somebody shares too. And then you say, yeah, and I have another story. And before you know it, you're in competition with each other. So it's, it's not very, it's, it's pretty likely. The third thing is it's a possibility that they thought that Jesus, as the Messiah, would appropriately take over Rome during this Passover celebration. Because remember, the Passover is a picture of it's a deliverance feast. Okay? So they may have thought that, they might have licked their chops and thought, hey, Jesus is going to take over tomorrow, and they might have been vying for position. One might have thought he would have been the governor of Judea. One might have thought he would have been the king of Galilee. Who knows? So you've got all these different um, possibilities taking place. But Jesus takes them now, whatever the rivalry was about, he takes it all and he puts it in perspective. He explains the important difference between greatness and leadership in God's kingdom and greatness and leadership in the observable pagan world. He shows the difference here. In verse 25, he talks about the kings of the Gentiles exercising lordship over them. Now, the observable pagan world, the kings ruled absolutely. They subjugated the people to, through force and intimidation. This, even, this leaven, this sin, even tainted the children of Israel. It crept in. If you know your history in the scripture, 1 Samuel 8, God said to the people, he wanted a theocracy. He wanted to rule them directly. And they said through the prophet Samuel, we don't want God to rule us. We want a king. We see all the nations around us. They have kings. We want a king too. So God finally gave them their way. And he explained through Samuel the prophet what the consequences would be. The kings would take your, your horses. They would take your part of your fields. They would take your children uh, into war, into service. And basically what he was saying to the people, through the, to the prophet, was these kings are going to tax you. They're going to tax the snot out of you. I'm going to love you as a father, but if you really want these guys to rule over you, like the Gentiles, go ahead and do it. You know? And that's the sad thing. Sometimes we can push God and push God and push God in what we want, and eventually he says, fine, have your way. I, this is a better way that I say to you, but sometimes we can just push because we have our own agendas, and finally... God will give us up over to ourselves. He'll eventually let us have our way to our detriment. The word benefactors, I like that word. Monarchies, governments of the world, even today, our government, they take a lot of your hard-earned tax dollars and they, they take as much as they can. Every year there's another tax on something. And what they do is they decide they're going to spend it better than they think you can spend it, the benefactors. Unfortunately, the bigger government gets, it often becomes mismanaged, and it uh, doesn't make a lot of people's life all that better in the long run. But historically, benefactors and government in those days, there was an element of worship of the state as deity. In the Roman Empire, the, your government, you worshipped them, those, those Caesars, those emperors. Uh, they were held in the highest esteem, and, and in return, they were going to do you a favor and help you run your life. Now, we also see this in, we had Voice of the Martyrs here last week, and he talks about Christians in persecuted nations. Some of them are Islamic states, some of them are communist states. If you really understand communist in its truest form, there's an adherence to worshipping the state. Okay, You can't divorce communism from worshipping the state. Because in countries like North Korea, and even in China, and a lot of these countries, the surface churches, if there are any, they're, they're watered-down churches. You can't speak about the second coming. 
you can't speak about the deity of Christ because it's in competition with that worship of the state government. So you kind of see that we we have some forms of government today that are sort of like the, the benefactors of old. In verse 26, Jesus says, but not so among you. You who, <laughs> not you who, but you who, meaning God's people, be as the younger. The younger in that society got the least inheritance, the least respect, and the younger often served the older siblings. And Jesus uses the illustration many times as becoming as a child, uh, to be converted as a child. So what you find here is the foundation of the church had to be based on love, cohesiveness, humility, often through service and other-centeredness. Even in the hallway, when I, I talk to the adults, every once in a while I'll feel a tug on my pant leg, and one of your children are coming up to me and they want to tell me that they memorized the scripture or uh, what they drew in the children's ministry, and I always try to pay attention to them. You know, uh, being, being like that child, that childlikeness, that humility is very important. In verse 27 here, Jesus introduces the concept of servant leadership. They all knew that Jesus was the greater, but he didn't dominate them. He led by example, love, influence, and service. And as I was preparing this, I thought, that's somewhere else in the scripture. And I've done that before, usually in terms of weddings. We talk about Ephesians 5, and we talk about the husband's role as the leader. But the husband's role is to emulate Christ's role with the church. He's to lead in love, influence, and service. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to become a ransom for many. He also said, He who exalts himself will be abased, and he who is humble will be exalted. He also talked about the feasts. The lowest seats in the feasts, Jesus said. Take the lowest seat, the, you know, the position of least prominence. And if the, uh, the master of the feast thinks you're worthy, he'll say, no, 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 friend, don't sit all the way at the end. Come over here, sit next to me at my right hand. He said, but it would be really embarrassing if you sat at his right hand. And he said, that position's not for you. I have somebody else to take that. Go sit over there at the end. So Jesus tried to talk about positions of humility. And these feasts really exemplified the seating arrangements, exemplified that humility. Now, I want to turn your attention to John chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Turn your Bibles to John 13, starting in verse 1. Verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and having... Supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, 
but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Now, this whole thing about washing feet, this whole ceremony, um, there's symbolism here. Everything that Jesus did physically, there would always be a parallel into the spiritual world. Jesus said, he who takes a bath, who's completely bathed, doesn't need to be washed again. He's already clean, just the feet need to be washed. And what that was a picture of is when we're completely clean from head to, to toe, when we become born again, we don't have to keep getting saved. <laughs> Once we're saved, we, we start our relationship with God, and we continue in that. We're, compl- we're clean from head to toe. However, the feet, and going to the physical, when you take a shower and you were in that climate and you walked around with your feet, your feet would get dirty. So they would often have to rewash their feet. Now, Jesus washing their feet was a picture of him forgiving them. Uh, you know, he who, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. So Jesus cleanses us, okay, from our sins because as Christians we still sin. But the transfer over was, he says, I'm doing this for you. Now you wash others' feet. And with the same forgiveness we got for our sins, we're to forgive others. Okay, there's just a lot to this. I think that you could do a whole sermon on this particular uh, passage. Okay, so he says in verse 12, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Now, this passage was chronologically on the same evening as we just were in Luke 22. This is the same evening, what I just read. It's just in a different, um, John chose to add this when Luke didn't. Now, in that culture, it was a hot climate and there were dirt roads. They didn't have nice concrete sidewalks and, uh, you know, tar roads that you could drive on because there was no cars. So it was a hot climate, dirt roads, and animals were the transportation of the day. So animals were going back and forth often, and they don't go to the side of the road when they have to relieve themselves. So the animal dung would be in the road in continuance with everything else. Now mix that with open-toed sandals and, and the fact that pedicures weren't probably something that people did regularly, and what do you have? Use your imagination. Dirty, sweaty, stinky feet. You know, it's just what it is. Um, Don't worry, we're not going to do that here. I'm not going to make people take their shoes off, although some churches do that. But I think the application is more of a spiritual application than a physical application. It was a servant's job in those days to remove the guest's sandals and clean their feet. At this Passover meal, apparently, with his disciples, nobody decided to do that. So you have Jesus here girding himself. It was a whole procedure. You know, there was inner and out of garments, and you, you girded yourself with a towel, and you filled the basin with water. And they probably looked at him at first and then said, no, 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 he can't be doing this. But none of them decided to get up and do it, so Jesus did it. So you have Jesus washing the feet. And here's his example. And the question is, what can we learn about true greatness based on Jesus' example? Well, what do we think? We think, when I was younger, I thought, you know, I worked three jobs, and I saved up enough money and I bought my first house in East Brunswick. 
I thought that true greatness meant that I had to be a self-made man. And I worked a lot, and I worked on the house, and uh, whatever, like Solomon says, whatever my eyes desired, I'd, I'd try not to withhold. I would work, 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 and get that. But you know what? All that craziness, um, you crash and burn after a while. You do all that stuff, and you think, well, this is the way to be a self-made man or woman, and you find out that no matter what you get, no matter how much of it you get, you, it's a lot. You know, it's a rat race. What about popularity? Um, I guess in the media they feel that uh, just as important as countries with nuclear weapons that uh, Britney Spears is shaving her head bald is, is very important to society. But she's popular, you know, uh, but her life is a mess. Now she shaved her head bald and she's doing all kinds of crazy things. And, you know, you have to definitely pity these people because their whole mindset is about being popular, but they're unhappy people. What about uh, and someone who's an eloquent speaker? Sometimes we can have a speaker come up who maybe just doesn't get it out right, but you know their heart. I mean, we've got to look past the way people are speaking and look at the message. What about achievements? Be winning a, the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, what, is that what makes someone great? That's what we think in our society. But the answer to all that is no. Being a servant is what's important in our society. Or actually, being a servant is what's important in God's eyes. Servant leadership. To me, I look at it this way. The demeaning struggle for self-worth is over. In, in a lot of jobs, uh, if you've worked in the world for long enough, you realize that when promotion time comes up, people who are normally friends are stabbing each other in the back to get that promotion. And people do that. It's very competitive, especially in the corporate world with all the layoffs. And it's really demeaning. You demean yourself because you lessen yourself to, to be a betrayer to other people just to get that promotion for an extra few thousand dollars a year. Some people are fighting their whole lives to to prove to the world that they're not the same person that they grew up. Some people are fighting against themselves because they look at their past and they say, I'm going to be something and I'm going to show the world that I'm not that same person that I was back then. But here, God relieves us from that. Becoming a servant of God, you don't have to demean yourself anymore. You don't have to stoop to those levels anymore. And it's refreshing and it's exhilarating. So, the point is that God loves us first. He died for us first. He put out the olive branch first. And we become greater by serving him, and largely through serving others. Gail Irwin, uh, Handbook for Servants, quoted this. He says, but then again, people say, okay, I'm a servant of the Lord. Gail Irwin said, you know that you're a, if you're a servant by how you react when someone treats you as a servant. That's tough. If somebody treats you as a servant and orders you around, and you're like, you know, and that's usually our fleshly example, our first example. Gail Irwin says, if somebody treats you like a servant, do you have to go out of your way to show them, I'm not your servant? <laughs> so we say we're a servant of God, but what, let's look at the example that Jesus set of a, a servant of God. The first thing is Jesus didn't wait for someone else to go first, and we see that in his, this example. People often wait for someone else to go first. This isn't even our building. We rent this place. But if I'm out in the hall and there's a piece of paper on the floor, I don't say to one of my elders, come over here, pick that piece of paper up. I pick it up. And if there's an elder and he sees a piece of paper, 
He doesn't do this to the ushers. He picks it up. There's no hierarchy here. We're all servants. And really what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to lead by example. And that means going first like Jesus did. If Jesus would have waited for somebody to wash feet, it would have never gotten done. Jesus also didn't wait for all conditions around him to be right. Jesus is going to the, in this point of scripture, Jesus is going to the cross in a few hours. And his closest friends become deserters. They will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And he knew it because he knew the future. He knew they were going to do this. His closest friends. Jesus' example is he didn't wait for everything to be perfect. And he did everything without grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2.14 tells us that. We serve as we serve unto God. We don't serve man. Because if we serve man, people are going to irritate us. And then we're not going to do it. We're going to be miserable. And then we're going to come in and be all upset about why we're serving. And God doesn't want us to serve with a, with a grumbling heart. He wants us to serve with joy. And Jesus also didn't do it for the glamour or the fanfare. There was nothing glamorous, as I just explained to you, about washing feet. And there was nothing glamorous about crucifixion. In Jewish law, you were cursed. The, the Old Testament said, cursed is anyone who was hung upon a tree. In Roman law, certain, certain people in the Roman Empire, that was in the form of their punishment. That was left in their minds of the lowest of the low. Um, there were certain people that just didn't get crucified because they were Roman citizens or uh, they had a dignified death. The crucifixion they left for the low of the low. Glamour, fanfare. I look at missions to hostile areas. I mean, people joke about wanting to become a, a missionary to Hawaii or, or the Mediterranean. But, uh, you know, some people are missions to really hostile areas of the world, and there's nothing glamorous about it. Prison ministry. I remember when one of our elders, Marty, he, uh, he talked to me about doing prison ministry. And in my mind, I thought he lost it. Well, because he was still a cop, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm a cop too. Two cops in a prison with a whole bunch of inmates, and they locked the doors behind you. There's something wrong with this picture, you know? It took him a long time. I had all the excuses in the world why I didn't want to do prison ministry. But I've got to tell you, when I got in there, I could not conceive that I was going to have a good time. But when I got in there, the time flew. One hour, two hours we were in there, and uh, it just was a blessing. It just was just a blessing to do this. I, I just can't explain it. But usually prison ministry is, is last on the list for people to sign up for. And Jesus didn't do it for social reasons. Um, if you decide to serve solely because you want to make me happier because you're like me, that's the wrong reason. Because eventually you, pr you may not like me anymore. Now I can't see how that would happen, but it is possible. So we serve to serve unto God, not man. And serving is to grow spiritually. When I pray about laying hands on elders... I always pray about, or one of the requirements is they had to have served somewhere. And it's not, again, this is more important ministry than this. If they've served in some capacity, then to me, that requirement has been fulfilled. And Jesus didn't do it without counting the costs. He did it. He served mankind. Uh, and obviously, he didn't do it just for the disciples' sakes because, you know, they left him and they caused him all kinds of problems throughout his ministry. But he died for our sins. It cost him his life. And, and it cost him his reputation. I mean, he was the son of God. And they humiliated him. They beat him to a pulp. He probably cried out in agony from the pain. This is the son of God. Okay? Um, it, it just wasn't a good way to die. It, wasn't, it just wasn't a, a, an honorable way to die. But he took that shame for us. He 
God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So count the cost. When we make a commitment, we should keep our commitments. Um, I think our society is too loose with commitments. I think our society, and again, as a whole, has a problem with, with commitment. Now, I can't speak of serving without speaking of marriage. I have to, there's just no way I can get around digressing into servanthood and marriage because I believe that they go together. In the beginning of my marriage, and I, I like to be a little open, <laughs> my wife's saying, now what is he going to say? Don't worry about it. Uh, in the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm a single guy, I'm getting married, and I'm thinking I could still be a single guy in all my freedoms and all the things I want to do and serving God and going here and going there, but I was a newlywed. And my wife started to feel like she was last on the list and wondering, why did you get married to me? And I don't get it. I mean, I want to serve God. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to drag her everywhere with me. Now, as a, a Christian woman, why wouldn't she want to do that? And I'm praying to God. I'm like, Lord, there's something wrong with this woman. She's defective, you know. <laughs> Maybe I could get a trade in or something. I just want to serve you. But what I learned was, wasn't I a knucklehead? <laughs> I'm less of a knucklehead now, but I am still am a little bit. But what I had to learn was, I was serving God when I learned to serve my wife. There was a lot of struggles in those days because I had to learn a hard lesson. Service. My counsel to young people is, and, and I've counseled young people, and they've said, well, I fancy the idea of getting married one day. I said, listen, you, if you're going to get married, be prepared to be a servant. And not just for a day or a few months and, or a few years, but all throughout the marriage. My advice is, or my, my, yeah, my advice is that when the service ends in the marriage, that's when the marriage starts to end. You know, as, as married people, we always serve each other. It's a continual thing. And if you're not prepared to do that, do yourself and the young lady a favor and don't get married. Now, I could say to, you know, in, in my life, I could say, well, I have two jobs. I've done my part, but I still do the dishes. I still get my son off the bus. I still, man, it's been really cold out last week. It's like in, in the teens. I still go out when I know she has to go somewhere, and I start up the truck, and I clear off all the snow. Now, in my flesh, I say, I don't want to go out there. It's cold. And if she drives fast enough, all the snow will blow off anyway. <laughs> but the spirit takes over and says, go out there in the cold and start the truck up and clear off the snow. So definitely, uh, it's a service-oriented experience. Now, some may ask me, well, the guys may say, Joe, and I've had this question before, you're being a little hard on the husbands here with this whole servant thing. Isn't the man the leader in the home? Yes, but a woman has a hard time uh, following a man that she doesn't respect. But on the other hand, I might as well just make enemies with everybody today, so here it goes. When a woman says, I do, barring extreme circumstances such as physical abuse or adultery, the wife is called to respect and give the leadership over to her husband. Scripture says that an overbearing or contentious wife is a bane to her husband and her family. There was a true story about a man recently who, he's a 90-year-old man, he came into the hospital and he had two broken legs. And the doctor, this is a true story, the doctor interviewed him and was like, well, what happened? He said, well, I jumped out the window. He said, well, why did you do that? 
And the man said, I'm 90 years old. I've been married for 65 years and I couldn't take it one more minute. (laughs) So the obvious question is, why didn't he just walk out the door? So there you have it, both sides. And if I don't get any hate mail, I did a good job. But marriage, you know, we, we, all, we have to work at our, our marriages. I mean, we have to, um, you know, if, you, if you're having trouble, um, you, maybe it's good to be honest with somebody that you're really close to. And also, are you getting plugged in? And I don't know who's got a good marriage and who's struggling. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't come forward, and they just kind of live in silence with it. But are you getting plugged in? That's what the home groups are for. Last night, we had a great time. We had... Um, the Gallias had set up a uh, Valentine's dinner for, for couples in the church. And everybody was fellowshipping, and we had a really good time. And that's just a, a great way to get together with other couples. And you know what? No marriage is perfect. You know, uh, we, we like to put on a, a smiling face and, and drive to church, you know, getting upset and having an argument about something. But as soon as you walk in the door, hey, brother, praise the Lord. Isn't my wife lovely? <laughs> and that's just not the way, you know, God sees it. Well, who are we kidding? So I just want to encourage you, uh, lastly, about marriage is, is to get plugged in, you know, to be involved and to make friends and to, you know, maybe be a little transparent at times. Verse 28. He says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here the promises of rewards are being laid out to the disciples. And you may say to yourself, I don't get it. (laughs) How could could Jesus do this after all they put him through? Especially Peter. He he said something good and then he kind of negated it. You know, he he would always be doing these, these impetuous things. And what we find out is after this rivalry... You know, they should be ministering to him. He's going to the cross. He's trying to get that clear to them. But what happens is, I'm sure Jesus broke it up. He ends up ministering to them. And again, he was the one who should have been ministered to, to. But the answer is this. God sees us in our completed work. Philippians 1, 6 says, To be confident that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. That means we're always a work in progress. We never arrive and become perfect Christian. But as long as we live, the Lord works on us. Uh, The day of Christ could be the day that he comes back for us while we're still alive, or the day that we depart, we we die, and we go to be with him. So throughout our whole lives, if we'll have him, and if we'll uh, have that relationship with him, he will continue to do a work in us. Now, these guys had bad behavior at times, and they abandoned him at the cross, but they become restored, and they become changed men, these disciples. They become great men of faith. They become the foundation of the church. So the point in all this is that God sees us here for what he will do with us. Elders, pastors, missions, fields, ministry leaders, um, evangelists, ministering to the homeless. I've got to tell you, 10 years ago, I could never imagine that I would be up here because I really didn't like public speaking. Uh, and I was afraid to do public speaking. And my friends who I, I grew up with in the Lord, you know, th- them too, the Lord has, has brought them to be elders and pastors and missionaries. And I, I, would, I didn't see it, and I know they didn't see it. But the cool thing is God sees the finished work in us. Even when we don't see 
our own future and we don't see what, what, what God's going to do with us, he sees it. And I would encourage you to continue to have that relationship with him and continue on with the Lord. He talks about sitting on thrones and judging. However he means, however he literally means it, the positions that they achieve in the kingdom of heaven are not because they learn to rule with an iron fist. That's very clear from the scripture. The disciples probably in the beginning would have wanted to rule with an iron fist until they learned from Christ. They learned about his teachings when he was resurrected. Uh, he rose again and then he went to be with the father. He, he conferred upon them the Holy Spirit. And these guys were different. They learned to rule through service. You see, they got the picture eventually. And, you know, real servant leadership, I think it's lacking big time today in our service to God. And also, there's a spillover into the effects of marriage. I think that's a direct relationship. Um, and I want to read a quote from a very, very unlikely source. I want to read a quote, and that's what I'm going to end with. Now, this man is, probably most of you are not familiar with him. His name is Sayyid Qutb. He was the, uh, the, one of the fathers of the modern Islamic jihadist movement. This guy, very violent man, and he was able to get people excited about jihad, about you know, holy war. And this is what he said when he visited the United States. I believe it was 1948. He said, No one else in the world has built more churches than the Americans. You will find Americans in church on Sundays, Christmas, Easter, and special religious occasions. Yet they are so empty and do not have a spiritual life. The last thing that an American would think about in everyday life is their religion. Is that powerful? From the, from the enemy, you know, from the enemy of God's people. But you know what? In some ways, he's right. Some people like that look at our country and say, there's, there's a veneer, there's a, a facade of spirituality but it doesn't permeate through the lives of Americans. So I, I just would like that to, you to digest about that, digest it, and you know, I, I would do the same in my life. But hopefully this will stir us up to be more on fire for the Lord and learn what it means to be a servant through the life of Christ. Let's pray. Faith. The last thing that an American would think